Good evening, and welcome to the Common Geeking Program. Don't tell me what time it is. I say good evening, though of course I don't know what time it is where you are. This is one of the defining sorrows of podcasts, that we cannot see each other. But this is a book club podcast for geek culture, and this week we are actually a book club, in that myself and my co-stars will be discussing, in depth, the 2005 Almanac of Complete World Knowledge, The Areas of My Expertise, by John Hodgman. I am joined this week by... Hello! I am Laura Kramer. You missed a couple words there in the title. Would you like me to read it out while I have the book directly in front of my face? Yes, sure, if you would not mind indulging us with the full title of the book. (coughs) (laughs) This book is An Almanac of Complete World Knowledge Compiled with Instructive instructive Annotation and Arranged in Useful Order by me, John Hodgman, a professional writer in the areas of my expertise, which include... Matters historical, matters literary, matters cryptozoological, wow, that's a hard one, hobo matters, food, drink and cheese, a kind of food, squirrels and lobsters and eels, haircuts, utopia, what will happen in the future, and most other subjects. And featuring the best of, were you aware of it? John Hodman's long-running newspaper novelty column of strange facts and oddities of the bazaar, the almanac that contains no weather information and once placed on your shelf will secretly replace all neighboring books with its own text. And I'm also joined by... <laughs> Hi, I'm Timol, or Chatter, whichever you prefer, I, I guess. Uh, and should I just be saying what, what I represent, like what section of the book I'm representing? Or Oh, I didn't do that. I just spent five minutes on the title. <laughs> <laughs> which I would like to clarify is technically the full title of the book, um, which may set the tone for what we are discussing. Uh, the Areas of My Expertise is a, uh, I think it's classified as a satirical almanac, which is not a description you see thrown around very often, uh, in the form of absurdist historical stories, complex charts and graphs, and uh, fake newspaper columns, as the fully enumerated title may suggest. Unlike other episodes of CGP, this discussion is of a singular topic, its various aspects, and its themes. This podcast is considerably more compact and contains no room for vagrants. We're we're not doing the normal thing we do where we, like, rep, like, some sort of domain, but, like, if we were, there's actually a book that that this book reminds me of called Get Me Out of Here, Exit Strategies for All Occasions by David Jacobson that... I would have represented if we did. <laughs> I think I've that actually heard great. of that book. Feel free to rope it in in the discussion. Um, so the reason we're doing it this way is the book actually insists that it may be read in any order, skipping sections and threading one's own narratives as desired. Um, it is actually written uh, before the, I guess, prose of the book, if you can call it that, is begun. Um, So because of that, we are each grabbing different sections from this assortment of fake trivia. I will be discussing the title page through the table of figures, which seems insubstantial, but is actually quite comical, and the section of the book called What You Did Not Know About Hobos. Laura, how about you? Uh, Today, I will be talking about the section What You Did Not Know About the Past. Specifically, uh, I wanted to talk about the... One moment. I'm ready for this. I'm not ready for this. (laughs) History. Oh, a brief timeline of the lobster in America. It's very good. (laughs) And Chatter, what are you talking about? Uh, I am talking about further information you can use today. In that section includes such great stuff like how to win a fight, all kinds of squirrel, and short words 
for use on submarines to preserve oxygen. (laughs) I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I'm very excited. So we will begin by summarizing first what I have brought to the table and the themes that I wish to discuss before going on to the individual domains listed by my co-stars and representatives here. After that, we will have a discussion section where we discuss and then rate the topic and determine who best contributed to the episode. With that, let us proceed to the summary. So first things first, I believe to fully understand the eclectic nature of the book, the areas of my expertise, it is worth taking a look at its author, John Hodgman. Now, I should also mention that this book is the first in a trilogy, as a publisher may call it, but in fact is simply the first volume of three of the Almanac of Complete World Knowledge, this being called The Areas of My Expertise, the second volume being called More Information Than You Require, though, Laura, there is also a ridiculously long title for that if we get around to it. (laughs) And the final volume is That Is All. They are all written from the perspective of a fictionalized version of Hodgman himself, where he presents himself in this episode as a lowly author, In the sort of preamble to the book, he's constantly saying, like, look at me, I used to be a literary agent, and now I'm what I've despised most, I'm an author. And it all comes from that lens, but this book was so successful that for the next two books, he's speaking from the point of view of an eccentric billionaire. And that's sort of the persona that he has adopted through these three books, but we'll be focusing simply on the first. It's also worth noting that though Laura and I are employees of Apple in a retail capacity, we have no ability to recast John Hodgman as the PC in our Mac and PC commercials as he (laughs) once was. Uh, So sorry for that, John. If you ever do listen, I have no swing with Tim Cook. My bad. We could try emailing him just to see. We could. Hey, I did a podcast about a person. You want to get involved in my not work interests and do someone else a favor (laughs) for great cost? This book, well, I think that there were a couple of reasons that I really wanted to sink my teeth into this. First and foremost, I've wanted to do a book for a while, but I was having trouble finding something that I could convince two people to read the entirety of. The unique format of this book allowing me to sort of skirt that requirement for this podcast. Uh, It is also a laugh out loud book. I think for each section, I laugh out loud once or twice a page as I go through it, and I kind of want to get your inputs on that. So the first thing that I wanted to summarize was the preamble called Good Evening. Before we even get into the book, and there are there are jokes everywhere in this thing. Yeah, literally everywhere. Li- like the entire thing, the format of these pages, the footnotes, the graphs and tables are just completely sardonic in their attitude. And the Good Evening preamble, the foreword to the book, is John Hodgman stating that he was once a literary agent and that he is now a writer. Uh, and I think it's mostly the exposition for the style of this book and the style of humor that he employs. If you do ever decide to pick up this book, a lot of people will skip forwards. You should probably read this. This is instructive in helping you really latch on to the style that the rest of the book takes because his jokes are absurd and unexpected. Um, Even the title page has jokes on it. Like, don't even skip that. Yeah. Uh, He has a table of contents, and then he has a table of figures, and then he has a table of tables. (laughs) Not just the individual. And it's actually a useful uh, index to say, like, one of my favorite jokes in the book is from just a graphic design thing, and it's in the table of tables, which I thought was a joke, but there's a purpose to it. Uh, On the title page, for example, and why you should read every page of this book, it says, 
this reasonably priced hardcover Dutton, Dutton book contains the complete text of the areas of my expertise. Not a single word has been omitted. If you purchase this book without a cover, you should be aware that it was reported as unsold and destroyed yes. to the publisher and his stolen property. <laughs> like, and so I, on and so forth. I describe the humor in this as very, uh, very dry. Like it's the kind of it, like a lot of the humor is dry from like uh, saying like very silly, absurd stuff. Yes. But with a very straight face and an mm. authoritative uh, language, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it. It actually kind of reminds me of a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Though, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was also focused. It was focusing around, uh, was it Arthur? Yeah. Was Arthur the main character's name? Yeah, it was like focusing around him um, and mostly like showing his dry reaction to the situation around him. But uh, in the, in the uh, Good Evening prologue, when describing the relationship of the author to the reader, he says, the image I conjure of you, dear reader, begins with this book. For if you are reading these words, chances are you are probably reading this book, <laughs> or one so similar to it that it doesn't matter. Moreover, I may presume you are holding this book with your own hands, or possibly mechanical hands that replaced your own hands at a terrible accident. I think you're dead on about how dry this is, and dry humor, I think, like, prime examples would be things like Monty Python, and in those sort of vein about how pop culture thinks of dry humor. It almost seems very British in the fact that it's not, I don't really think that the humor in this book is trying to be bombastic so much as it is just taking very simple premises. And for like every word, I feel like he has sentence diagrams that are like, what is the polar opposite of what every word in this sentence actually means? And where can I employ these things to sort of play on your expectations? And it happens on such a micro level, but also a macro level. Because the robot hands things comes back over and over again during this good evening section. Like in the last section, he's talking about like taking your robot hands from you. And that's something <laughs> you don't really need to see to come yeah. back. It's a lot of like uh, him putting like images in your head that are like silly. Like I almost imagine like, or like, like when he describes something, like one of those like wonky Monty Python animations, like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like exactly what that's it so feels funny. like. The uh, what is this dumb note? I did not take great notes here. I'm so sorry about this. So well, you I have been I, deathly ill for a while. So that's true. I hope that the audience is having fun listening to my vocal bones rattle against each other into this sweet microphone. Hot. Um. So the, he the entire good evening section is him like very blatantly stating like I. I <laughs> I understand this relationship. I am writing this book. This is very important. All the libraries in the world can't compare to this. But there's only really one point in this book where he directly cops to the fact that it's all fake. And I think it's important. It's pretty obvious that it's all fake. But it, I think it is instructive, again, to how he constructs these jokes and how he thinks about it. Uh, and the last quote I want to read from the Good Evening section is, The main advantage that this book has over libraries, and indeed all of its Almanacian predecessors, is that all of the historical oddities and amazing true facts herein are lies made up by me. And it is this astonishing innovation that allows each entry to contain many more uh, much more truth than if it were merely factual. And this is, I think, one of the first places in the book where I laughed out loud. Uh, then proceeding to the table of contents, which even if you don't read this book, if you think back to what Laura and Chatter are representing, the table of contents will make you chuckle just going through what the names of each of these sections are, as with the tables and figures. But the main section and the meat and potatoes that uh, 
I am representing today, aside from Good Evening, is the section of the book entitled What You Did Not Know About Hobos. Now, it is worth noting that in the Good Evening section, when talking about uh, hobos and vagrants, he, he does go out of his way to say, like, I'm not talking about people who haven't chose being homeless, who haven't chosen living a, living a homeless life. Like, I'm talking about people who are, like, sneaking into places and, like, loitering and it sounds kind of like a throwaway joke until you get to the hobo section, because this is, to me, like the Lord of the Rings of this book. <laughs> He's created such a strange mythos around his idea of hobos. So when he says vagrants and says that he wants you to look out for vagrants while reading the book and coming out of the book itself, here, here are the quick notes on what the section What You Did Not Know About Hobos uh, sums up for you. Uh, the Great Depression allowed the rise of a pre-existing secret society of hobos. They are led by Joey Stinkeye Smiles, who began reigns of terror across the U.S. And FDR fought the hobos with his hobo eradication plan called the New Deal. <laughs> the WPA uh, was led by a moonlighting hobo hunter named Walker Evans. And this was the Great Depression in this fiction, is that the Dust Bowl was like a series of attacks by the hobos upon <laughs> the government and the people of the United States and that all of the economic issues were like part of the quelling of hobos and the hobo uprising and like there's a hobo queen in there yes there, there's a hobo queen uh hobos mysteriously disappeared after pearl harbor <laughs> um which i think is described because joey stink eye smiles and uh, Walker Evans were, like, fighting each other, but hobos can disappear into a crowd. So they end up in, like, a New York City subway, and Joey was apparently just trying to distract Walker Evans so all the other hobos could create these acts of tyranny and terror. And then Joey Stinkeye smiles, smiles and vanishes into a crowd, and all the hobos disappear after that. And that's, like, a mythos that didn't need to exist, and I'm very glad that it does. And I say Tolkien-esque because it's just... It really, in like five pages, he makes a weird multi-layered story that's completely absurd. The cherry on top is that there was like a reincarnated um, hobo king that was Joey Stinkeye Smiles, and they had like a blind hobo king sniffing dog that found him, but it turns out the <laughs> dog was wrong, and that down the street was the real reincarnated hobo king who led... That is very Life of Brian. <laughs> yeah, very Life of Brian, just like you're watching it sideways. <laughs> But that one never got the attention, and his name was Boxcar Normie, who started the trend of the Phobos. <laughs> and then he, like, quickly lists out the, the characteristics of, like, this counterculture to the hobos that he created in and of itself. Which, if you've ever read The Silmarillion, it shouldn't feel analogous to, like, the masterwork of J.R.R. Tolkien's Legendarium. But to me, it kind of does. And maybe that's a me problem. No, I get it. This dry uh, summary, I don't think really captures the ultimate humor that John Hodgson managed to uh, infuse into this book. But those are merely two sections of it. I think one of the things that I sort of wanted to tackle myself and why I want you guys as a sounding board for this episode is I do love so much about this book. This dry humor resonates with me very, very deeply, mm. and I've already begun reading the rest of his works. Uh, I've also read his book Vacation Land, which is not really a fictionalized version of itself. It's sort of memoirish, and it reflects on the strange tone of these books, and his sharp humor is still there, but it is prose rather than ridiculous and i think it works in both ways the thing that vexed me a bit though is i love vacation land 
And I don't know if I love the areas of my expertise, even though I love Joey Stink Eye Smiles and the list of 700 hobo names that actually he wrote out. There's actually 700 of them. He did an audiobook, and Jonathan Colton did the music to it. And the beautiful thing is, some of those hobo names can double as porn names. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, the Whitman sampler. 100%. <laughs> 280, by the way. That is, that is something that we need to spend time with, is which hobo names are porn names, too. Shit. <laughs> yeah. I'll open up the page right now. <laughs> Do it. We got to get into it. No. Uh, so I think what I want to, what I really want to figure out for myself is why I do love this book, but why I feel like there's something missing. And I don't think it's any fault of the author mm. or of the book, but I, d this is just as much for the listener as it is for me. I want to sink my teeth into this wonderful, humorous, laugh out loud riot of a work. So let's talk about some other sections that the genius humorist and columnist and author John Hodgman has written for us today. But first, real quick, number 30, number 33, Sweet Daddy Champagne. Oh, Sweet yeah. <laughs> that's that, that, Wait, that's what about, definitely a poor name. What about number 103, The Fish and Physician? <laughs> <laughs> that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> Laura, what was the section of the book you're discussing again today, if you didn't mind? It is What You Did Not Know About the Past. Um, so I selected specifically, uh, originally, God, why is it so hard for me to flip through fucking pages? All right. <laughs> uh, a Brief Timeline of the Lobster in America. I love this so much. Which is pretty amazing. Um, and then I went back and reread the whole section, and I found myself really drawn to history's worst men's haircuts. And yes. um, I hope mine isn't in there. <laughs> the one I have, right? Because my hair is in just a horrible mess. I haven't, um, I haven't combed it. Well, we, we can go over those if you want. And also the beard manual, which includes uh, a table 12 for expert barbers only. I haven't shaved either. so um, And has a list of what you would need to make these wonderfully named beards and the rate of difficulty so i kind of ended up getting a little bit stuck with the hair situation after originally choosing the lobsters what is the uh what page are you on um so the brief timeline of the lobster is se uh, page 79 page 79 the, the pagination in the ebook is the same so it's very nice nice should be uh, anyway. the beard manual is on 91 and history's worst men haircuts is on 71 it's the very beginning Gotcha. Yep, I got it pulled up. Um, so I'm going to just go through briefly kind of what each of my subsections are about. Mm -hmm. um, History's Worst Men Haircuts is pretty great um, because it talks about how, you know, the timeline of the entire world and then if all of history is a year, human history is merely the last 10 seconds. Um, you may be surprised to learn that more than two thirds of the worst haircuts in history may be contained in the slightest fraction of a millisecond in which man has played hockey. <laughs> It's that kind of just like, like, yes, it applies, but nobody would ever think of it. And it, that surprise delights me so much. And it's so great. And it talks a little bit about how, you know, you know, how do you know what the history of haircuts are? And he's like, well, pictures and drawings. Um, but they say about specifically for the hockeyists, <laughs> hockeyists which is a word in here, um, they have, uh, we're leaving the mullet aside. And their haircuts are the scrape, the scab, the floppy dog ear, the executive floppy dog ear, and the shag spoop. 
And he says, sadly, photographs do not exist. Only apocryphal tales told by former hockey men who are, as you know, unreliable due to their zombie-like stupidity and puck fever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he goes on uh, not too long after that, but then there's a wonderful table about discredited styles, which include the Napoleon hat, which is apparently sadly (laughs) self-explanatory. The sink cut, where you put your head over a sink and cut everything, and you can catch the blood much easier that way. (laughs) The shot glass, which is one of my favorites, which is a U.S. military style from the 1930s, where you stick a shot glass on someone's head and shave off everything but that one little bit, (laughs) which can be used for tying the heads of young soldiers together for a prank or for their own safety. Um, There's a couple others in there. And then we move on from the haircuts to famous novels that were not originally published as books. This section is actually mostly footnotes. So the footnotes in this book are sometimes longer than the actual. There are entire pages that are like completely footnote. Yeah. So this one is a heavy footnoted page. Uh, Pretty great. There is a were you aware of it, which is a recurring theme uh, throughout this book. Each section. I don't know if every section has one, but a lot of the sections have a were you aware of it little fact. This one in particular is about uh, eponyms, which are words that are named after people. So that was really great mm-hmm. um, because there was more surprising eponyms included Sir Dennis Ballpoint, <laughs> Nellie Unicycle, <laughs> and Marie Eponym, which I enjoyed a lot. <laughs> uh, we then jump to Table 9, which is Great Rivalries in Dungeons and Dragons, which I also very much yes. enjoyed. This, I like, I didn't reread your entire section, but I went through that table a couple times. It's pretty great. Um, I'm not going to go into super detail. It's on page 78 if you're interested in reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we come to a brief timeline of the lobster in America, which I think my favorite part was learning that there is an old lobster and a new lobster. So the new lobster is what we consider the crustaceans. It's, it's lobsters. But the old lobsters are actually otters. <laughs> They're otters that lived in Maine. And like the, the new lobsters were brought to Maine and became an invasive species. Figure 11, it says the lobster. And it's just a picture just of a, a sea picture otter. Of an otter. <laughs> Which, if you haven't actually read the section, you look at that picture and you're like, what the fuck is happening in this book? <laughs> It's pretty great, Um, but they go over some of the things that happen in lobsters. So apparently lobsters are in 198, or I'm sorry, 1890, the New York socialite Frederick Green releases 100 European lobsters in Central Park, and they call it the Great Scrambling. (laughs) Basically, it's chaos. People die. They like attack. Lobsters attack people in alleyways and eat babies and stuff. Hate when that happens. They're seen everywhere. And then they kidnap some kids. Uh, They find that lobsters are actually not easily killed, um, except by boiling them. (laughs) So then Roosevelt diverts the creatures to Maine via a secret canal. Duh. Um, And then they thrive in Maine, where they have to fight off the sea otters. (laughs) Pelts harvested from the old lobsters are used as very small carpets, (laughs) and so on and so forth. So lobster claw deformities emerge as a popular form of folk art. Uh, Red Lobster opens its first restaurant in Florida. (laughs) At at the time, their famous 45 lobster special costs only $2.95. I completely forgot about that joke that the history of the American lobster includes the development of Red Lobster. Of Red Lobster. (laughs) Uh, there's one fact that I really like. So the last old lobster finally perishes in 1980 in the kitchen of a lesser known rival chain, Furry Old Lobster. <laughs> that was really, it. that's kind of it. And it's a sad, sad story that they go on to. 
And then they talk about films in which I, John Hodgman, have made cameo appearances. Laura, did you know that he actually, he, I think, was, I don't remember what the character was, but he was a bit part in Battlestar Galactica at one point. I did not know that, but I will definitely go back. And he is a back. massive Battlestar Galactica fan. Uh, me too, John Hodgman. So, me too. So that is a very fun thing to know. Now, yeah, go ahead, Chatter. Like the book or the movie? Because the book is unironic fascism honoring while the Battlestar? 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 Wait. Are you thinking... What oh, no, you think? I'm thinking of Starship Troopers. My bad. Oh, uh, I'm, okay. Super different. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah, I was about to say. I'm stupid. My bad. I was like, I that's, didn't even know Battlestar was a book. That's, that's my bad. I, <laughs> why, why was I thinking Starship Troopers? But... Now, no idea. I do have a question. Is he actually in these movies? No. No, these no. are absolutely not true. Okay. Um, he has definitely made a lot of uh, cameos and things, but he was he was not in Crimson Tide. Absolutely not. Well, I was listening to the uh, uh, Friendly Fire the other day, and they stuck in. Oh goodness, I'm shaming my family right now. And by family, I really mean just Charles. Uh, who's the guy from Die Hard? Uh, Bruce Willis. Yeah, but what's his character name? John McClane. John McClane. Oh they yes. They apparently insert John McClane into the movie Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Yep. Oh my god. So like you never know. <laughs> Mind blowing. It's actually in the film. I feel like I'm very close to my mic today because I just want to rest my head on it. Anyway, thank you, Laura, for summarizing your section. Uh, I know it's it's weird to me to not be like discussing this yet yeah. because we don't normally do a straight book club, but um I'm just having fun reliving the book and chatter. I'm so excited to hear the section that you have brought to the table before we do openly discuss. Hit me with it. What you bring? All right. <clears throat> Further information you can use today. It's basically like short stuff about that's supposed to be, you know, satirically informative. Like, for example, how to win a fight. It like goes through a step-by-step on like how, how to win a fight. And it's like, step one, always make eye contact. <laughs> If you turn away, you show fear. Even if your enemy is not in the same room, you should be making eye contact. <laughs> Preferably for an hour or longer. <laughs> and like uh, ha- halfway through, he like says, step, it's, uh, it's step three. I cannot stress this enough. Run lots of attack ads. And like, <laughs> he throws like, I forgot about and like he throws like three examples of attack ads, which are basically just like passive aggressive uh, jab, borderline irresponsible. That's what friends of John Hodgman are saying about Jonathan Coulter. Or attack ad number two. What's going on with Philippe Oliveira? When John Ho- John Hodgman needed a subletter for his apartment, Oliveira said he was the man for the job, but his resume tells a different story. <laughs> Ah, it's so relatable. Yeah. Uh, or there's uh, all kinds of squirrel. Like for the first half, squirrel. For the first half of it, he's just talking about how fucking annoying squirrels are. Uh, like one part I really like is uh, as I looked up and saw the other vermin feeders around me, I saw that their pants were dirty as well, but in a different disturbing way for the first time i saw many of these men had beards (laughs) their beards were often unkempt and often had strained objects lodged in them these were not just animal loving retirees how had i not noticed it before they were basically hobos (laughs) (laughs) and i 
was becoming one of them. <laughs> and then the other half is just like uh, naming different types of squirrels and saying like funny stuff about them. Like, here we go. Uh, flying squirrels, known as the fuzzy-tailed rats of the air, flying squirrels inhabit the skies of most most of North America and Europe, feeding on hawks, eagles, and sky nuts. <laughs> Skills. Their gigantic clawed wings were the inspiration for Da Vinci's sketches of a prototype flying squirrel machine. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah, this, sec- this section is just full of, like, informational stuff that is, you know, untrue, because jokes. And <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so... Yep. No, so I was gonna... Um... Of this section that you had to go through, do you have a favorite part in particular? Uh, it would have to be how to win a fight, because it's, it's just very... Uh... I think it's very much how you and I would actually fight people. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of what resonates with me, is I'm, I'm much better at looking at someone's like personal insecurities and social like faux pas and lack of grace <laughs> than actually punching them. Uh... I mean, I, I used to be a... I used to do boxing, but, like, uh, you know, I'd rather not, like, get into a physical confrontation, so... Especially when you can just uh, confront someone about being a hobo, and then when you start using some of their boxcar runes and, and their different, uh, you know, <laughs> special languages, which, oh my god, oh my god. So, um, I became aware of John Hodge, uh, not, that's his podcast, I became aware of John Hodgman's body of work through one of my friends who just, like, found the hobo thing online and fell in love with it. The first time I played a tabletop role-playing game was he just made a little thing. Uh, one of our friends who had a long beard and scuffy clothes and sort of grunted around very much as the vagrants and hobos <laughs> described in this uh, work of fiction. Uh, and we called him a hobo very often. When they were moving to Texas, one of my friends put together a tabletop game uh, that revolved around this hobo society that John Hodgman <laughs> had created. And we had to solve puzzles by learning the different runes. That's amazing. And... and it was one of the most wonderful experiences that I have had. Like, uh, another part of this section is short words for use on submarines to preserve oxygen. Oh, yeah. That's oh, my really... goodness. Yes, please. I haven't read this one yet. I'm excited. Because, like, uh, I just like I just like to imagine, like, people in a submarine actually talking like that and how ridiculous it would sound, you know? like What are some of the got, options? Uh, like, some of, some of the words are, Con, control of the submma under KOTU, who has the con need not relinquish it until he is ready. Thereafter, the con automatically goes to Nemo or whomever has put a quarter on the screen. <laughs> that is what con means. Or uh, how about Jaffo? Just another fucking oxygen breather. A rookie submariner. <laughs> uh, U.S. Navy. Undersea navigational U... A forked branch, traditionally of you, used as a defining rod to help the submarine find water. (laughs) (laughs) These are things I need to incorporate into my life, especially as I prepare to play more uh, Sea of Thieves. Mm. If I'm going to be running around on a boat, these are words I need to know. Um, So I think that that is a reasonable summary. Do you have anything else that you would like to add to uh, your section of this book club reporting process is this a book report or a book club at this point i don't know uh let's see club, i think i didn't write anything down <laughs> all right fair enough <laughs> that's the only difference number 159 deformed abe that could be a porn name right oh no <laughs> i didn't see all that right, coming g- oh no 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 210 salty salty friday 
That is definitely a porn name. No, that's a porn title. That is yeah. that's the name <laughs> of a of a porn movie. Although or porn movie, two hundred and eleven. Fat man and the creature. Uh, uh no. <laughs> Wait, what about saltfish bunion? Saltfish Ooh, bun good. Jesus Christ. Alright, we're gonna move on now. Uh, for the discussion, because most of this podcast so far has just been discussing the things in the book, I want to talk about uh, why we enjoy them or maybe why we don't. So the first thing I just want to ask either of you, and this is pretty broad, which aspects of this book do you find are effectively entertaining? I know we're laughing at a lot of things, but what what do you think about the jokes that get you the most? Like Chowder for How to Win a Fight or Laura, The History of the American Lobster. What is it about those things that sort of speaks to you? I think that it's funny because the what speaks to me the most is obviously just the complete misdirection that there's going on in every sentence. Mm. Like, I think there is not a single sentence in there that ends the way you expect it to based on how it started. That's a good way to put it. And I think that he is very masterful in choosing very unexpected endings, which are just hilarious. Like, it's, you know, he's obviously thought them out and they are unexpected and you know, lead to very silly imagery. And it's, I think that that is really effective. And I think that the format of the book really lends itself well to that because it can jump around a lot and can choose a lot of different subjects to just kind of like plop into your head and then like move right along. So yeah, I think that's, that's what I really enjoy most about it. This is obviously a little bit of a dry breakdown of humor, but he really does no, the no, unexpected I, I and that's it, a, it works. That's a perfect way to put it. Again, like even just the sentence about the robot hands. And, yeah. And, and, and like the bloviating that goes into the sentence of if you're reading these words, you're probably reading this book yeah. or a book so close to it that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it's, it, it's, it's something that th- there are instances where I think he employs truisms like that as a form of <laughs> misdirection mm. where like I think over elaborating on something can be a joke in and of itself. But then he hits you with, uh, oh, you must be holding this book that you may or may not be reading with robot hands. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, where, where did that come from? That is not the rabbit hole I thought I was yeah, going like, down. Uh, right. uh, to me, what gets me is like, uh, like he kind of crafts this character that, uh, that like is his own straight man because like the character is very intellectual and like knows a lot of stuff. But like when he actually says something, it's, well, inane and dumb and <laughs> and like he takes it so seriously you know uh yeah one thing i wanted to point out is like you know the key to any good comedy is a good straight man someone who takes the ridiculous so seriously like uh mm. i i've always said that the funniest superhero is batman because you can imagine batman in any situation and it'll automatically become funnier oh batman my god goes, grocery shopping batman to, like heck even the comics do it like oh my god there, there's an issue where like batman has to like ca- carry a baby around with him as he's fighting crime because the baby's like a target for a criminal is targeted by a criminal organization so now he's like running around gotham fighting crime while carrying a baby there's one point where like <laughs> Uh, Batman stops a bunch this? of muggers and, like, uh, the woman the muggers were trying to mug, like, scolds Batman for holding the baby incorrectly. And then the muggers are like, yeah, Bat, you gotta support its neck. Otherwise, because they don't got much muscles up there. And Batman's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and then, this like, is up the such muggers. a revelation to me. How have I never <laughs> thought of this? This episode, I got the answers I was looking for in this episode. I needed this in my life. 
just what like in what would Batman do? I had never yeah. Like that that is it's such a good foil for like, reality. Ba- ba- yeah. Like Batman is the ambrosia of comedy, man. Like you, you could do anything with him and like adding Batman makes it funnier. Jesus. I just learned so much. So I guess um, this is not the first episode that we've done talking about absurdist humor previously. I think you guys were on the episode about rubber, which I think is is interesting in its own right as a, as a more visual medium than a book. On a side note of that, I did talk about the movie The Lobster in that particular episode (laughs) and i'm currently talking about lobsters again so i feel like there's a theme here do you just have a lobster tank where you like heat up the water to tell them like hey i could kill you by (laughs) boiling you but just don't forget i'm in charge maybe i went a little further with that than i expected to when i started (laughs) that sentence so um i guess i want to john hodman how's it going I would like to ask you guys building off of the answers you just gave me how do you feel that this compares to other forms of uh, absurd or exaggerated humor Uh, not just in terms of your enjoyment but in terms of maybe how it's made because you know the ultimate comedian batman or monty python (laughs) or rubber just uh, how does all that stuff compare to this in your mind well one thing it's good at is creating ridiculous images in your head because Mm. because it's text you it can like just like take advantage of like the fact that the audience is going to project and thus the audience whatever the audience thinks it's going to be way funnier than whatever you could present to them you know so just give them enough details and they can fill in the holes in Mm. the most ridiculous way uh yeah yeah that's a good point and that's exactly what good evening starts off by doing is by immediately saying you are the reader you are in this situation let me tell let me break down what is happening to you and then the entire book kind of riffs on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of the absurdist media that I've consumed have been visual. Like I Mm -hmm. watched Rubber and The Lobster and and some stuff like that. And I actually am not a huge fan of absurdist humor, generally speaking. Um, And I think I like it a lot more in written form because it does allow me to use my imagination. Like part of the humor that I find in absurdism is that like absolute, illogical leap that they make that all of a sudden you're somewhere totally different and when you're doing that in film you have to somehow create that and make it feel real but because you know it's not real it never feels right to me and so then again like bouncing off chatter's point by giving you the ability to construct that understanding it's much easier to bounce against it yes because you don't have that same like internal dissonance for the presentation like i'm just reading along and like the pictures are forming in my mind as i'm reading the words and then all of a sudden there's you know, a furry lobster dying in the back of a restaurant. And like, <laughs> it's not, it's a sea otter and nothing makes sense, but it just feels more natural because I can picture the whole scene in my own head and it has an internal consistency because it's being written by one perspective and it's being read by one perspective instead of having however many hundreds of people work on a film. And like, and like with visual mediums like film, uh, you're ultimately limited by budget and like how absurd you can make something is limited to technology and yeah. special effects and just, you know, the stuff that holds a movie. In, in animation with shows like Adventure Time or Regular yeah. Show or things in that vein, it's pretty easy to get like zany, but the design is still a limitation because it has to 
be internally yeah, consistent. Like, like mm. animation is one of the most freeing mediums, but it but the catch is that you can do anything you want, but you have to make it yourself. So yeah. you know, like you don't always have the time or the yeah. money or the manpower to do what you imagine. It's also like when you're looking at an animation, you know that you're looking at something that is inherently untrue in some way. And not to say that it's like mm. like you know that it's not in your world, right? Like, because there's some sort of animation going on, like, even if you're watching the highest level of, like, an anime where it's only humans and, like, everything makes sense in the world, like, you still know that it's an animation that's drawn. There's something about, and I don't think this is true about all absurdist books either, because obviously I haven't read that many of them, but there's something about this particular one where it states that, like, he's going to be telling lies, but the lies are good because he starts somewhere in the truth. And so yeah. there's, like, a basis of, like, everything that I say might start out as the truth like like everything might be kind of true until i blow it up into this huge lie but when you start that way and when you write the way john hodgman does it does feel like he is talking from our universe like he is in the world and then all of a sudden we're like taking down these super bizarre roads but it always feels like yeah it's set in some sort of reality like i was genuinely unsure even though i know this whole book is like all humor i was like maybe he was in all these movies <laughs> like maybe that did happen yeah. i don't know yeah but but uh i actually kind of disagree with you on like animation and how like that they inherently like you know you inherently know the unreality of it not in that well ob obviously you look at it and you know it's not real but like good animation also takes its uh basis in reality like yeah no i definitely agree with that i i struggled with kind of what i meant in that no i get so it so if you can get yeah if you can pinpoint what i'm trying to say that'd be great because my brain's not getting there I, I think the biggest crystallization for me of what you guys both are saying is that what we did not know about hobos section because it's stated in the beginning of the book that when he's describing hobos it is this it is not what we consider hobos which could be like a pretty problematic turn to throw around as often as he does in the book but he yeah. gets out of the way by defining it as something different but it's still rooted in a term that we know. And then it, when he gets to the section, it's about the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and things that we know exist. So it gives you that, that foundation of stuff you understand. And it almost sounds just like a conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. Like it is grandiose in the way it's built. But the fact that he's explaining these things about the real world. Um, did either of you guys take a look at the uh, R51 United States? I, I did not, so. no. If you get the chance to read it, it's worth your time. It's the longest section of the book, but it has each state a fake motto and a fake description about it, including the 51st state called R, A-R, or Hohok, H-O-H-O-Q, which is a floating city ruled by Thunderbirds, the liaison to which was a man driving a Ford Thunderbird who, like, mysteriously got transported to it and ended up serving on their Congress once they were brought into the United States. And it's, it, the entire book is full of, like, that, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but he turns it into an absurdist joke. And I know it's not actually a conspiracy theory, but I, I think that's sort of the middle ground between what you guys are saying, that that part of us that wants to believe these things and that cross-references information in our mind, I think he sort of found a way to tap into that yeah. and grab your attention, even though you know it might not be true or know it is in fact not true. I'm trying oh, no, to figure just... out, we might have to take this out. I'm not 100% sure how it's going to land. Um, speaking of things that could be a little bit problematic, uh, there's the section, the films in which I, John Hodgman, have made cameo appearances. He talks about Mimic, which is a horror film where giant bugs come for 
<laughs> come to me for literary advice. Uh, and later the cockroaches return with an autistic child who understands their strange language. And then it skips ahead a little bit. He says, but I do remember that between takes, he was either very high or very autistic. Uh-huh. And then it moves on. And then there's a second at the end, or not quite the end. And then he's talking about the Muppet movie in which he apparently has a cameo role. <laughs> and he says, I recall either getting high or autistic on the set with the film's composer, <laughs> Paul Williams. Jesus Christ. And so it's just like very unexpected and like kind of problematic. And yeah. he doesn't kind of set forth a, a certain expectation about autism the way that he does hobos. But it is kind of that like, I may not be the hugest fan of using that term in that way, but like the idea of getting autistic being the same as getting high yeah it, was definitely... it, it is just it is totally just breaking the logic of what he said before yeah before i kind of give my final piece on the thing i have a couple other very very quick questions i guess i want to ask uh not just your favorite section but do you have a favorite joke or excerpt or table or figure from the book like a single line um I don't know if I have one in particular because, and I think I'll go into this a little bit more in the ratings, I, the book is laid out in such a way that it has a lot of diversity and it does bring the jokes back around. It does a very good job of kind of weaving them through, but there was not like one that really, really stuck out to me, I guess. Okay. Chatter, do you have any such? Because I have one that I, I always think about. Also, as just like the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to lie to the listeners i almost said readers you don't read our podcast um i have not actually finished reading this book and i will talk about that as i well. didn't i didn't expect you to if you're still reading it that's fantastic yeah no but i like i i went in with the intention of reading the whole thing mm-hmm. uh and i had not finished so i don't know if there's something that maybe i would hook onto later maybe what's up chatter from how to win a fight <clears throat> step two go ahead and use henchmen <laughs> i know everyone <laughs> wants to fight his own battles but in this day and age it is simply unnecessary and actually sort of frowned upon, especially when there are so many skilled henchmen who are out of work. <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that. So my favorite joke... God, why is my phone doing this? My phone's being super funky right now. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Uh, oh, that's why it's doing that. See? Okay, let's try this. I see why now. My favorite joke from this book is Table 16, which is Washington, D.C. as seen from Great Heights. And he describes the changing vista of the city of Washington, D.C. from balloon height, double balloon height, zeppelin height, jet aeroplane height, a spy satellite height, and at Lockheed Martin orbital zeppelin height. Um, my favorite being that like he keeps describing different things. At jet aeroplane height, he says, the city's 33 great pyramids and 33 honored sphinxes clearly form the outlines of the fractal we now call the Mandelbrot set. <laughs> Um, at different, at different altitudes, you can see like different shades of rabbits. And at one point the rabbits are like eating the mice running out of the city. But at the highest, it's just a picture of a magician with a snake on his shoulder. <laughs> like, can you see the hidden image from space? And it's literally just a picture. Let me see if I can show you. It's just a picture. It's a picture of a guy with a snake on his shoulder. And like, whenever I think about this book, I think that's what my mind goes to. Oh, on the topic of favorites, I know we went through several hobo names, but do either of you have a favorite hobo name that you have taken down? I do really enjoy Slow Mo Deuteronomy. <laughs> I'm pretty good. Chiseltooth Muck Manly is also pretty good. <laughs> Wasn't there one that was actually just like a name? Uh, yes, Nick Nolte. <laughs> Nolte. <laughs> oh wait, uh, that one's that one's my favorite. 
Okay, I guess I'll go with number my number two favorite and number three favorite. Uh, number two is Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot. That's good. <laughs> number three favorite is number 326, The Railbender. <laughs> That's a good porn name. That's a really good one. So my favorite hobo name. Porn name, Avatar OC. Unconditional Gavin is also a really good one. <laughs> number 193 woody dam woody dam woody dam woody dam that's just a straight up like i would not mind that nickname <laughs> so there's something you may not know depending on how much you've looked in the book uh after publishing this book uh there was a reprint that included um uh, an afterword where he said that because of the name nick nolte and that that was a joke he felt he didn't actually meet the 700 requirement. So there are an additional 100 hobo names in the afterword. Oh my God. And that is where my favorite comes from. The, the uh, hobo-esque fellow with whom I played tabletop games, his name was Kevin. And one of my favorites is the name Kevin Eggs and Bacon. <laughs> As a hobo name oh uh, for personal reasons. That's very good. Um, but he does conclude that second. So there are actually 800 hobo names. But so at the end of that second list of hobo names at the 100, he says, no, actually, just Nick Nolte. Like he reiterates <laughs> that he is doing Nick Nolte at the end of it. And that's the punchline. Wait, 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 hold on. I didn't even notice this one before. Number 149, Black Bolt. King of the Inhumans. Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> just- <laughs> I really like Ponzi scheme, Jeremiah Ponzi. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for our discussion on this book. Um, I think the the like the point that you guys have helped me articulate is, and getting back to Monty Python and Laura, you mentioned Life of Brian, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, famously probably their most successful and popular film. Uh, I actually much prefer. Life of Brian. It's on Netflix right now. Because it is because it is more cohesive. It is a story where Monty Python and the Holy Grail is, I think, a series of sketches. And while each of those sketches is fantastic, I enjoy Life of Brian more. So in that way, I love watching the Holy Grail and I love reading this book. But I think it's my, why I might like Vacation Land and Life of Brian better. Is that I think what you said about all these like very small tuned in jokes and the way he constructs them. Um I feel a sense of resolution Hmm. that our listeners might not share. And in that case, I am sorry, but I'm very pleased with the way that this has worked out. (laughs) Do either of you have any final thoughts before we proceed to the rating section? Yeah, uh, I've seen Life of Brian and Holy Grail. I kind of like Holy Grail better because the way Holy Grail ends, like where like everyone gets arrested and yeah, (laughs) it's like it's like reality falling apart. And like I. And I like that. Judge John Hodgman, the podcast run by John Hodgman, uh, his bailiff is Jesse Thorne, a famous podcaster and radio personality who runs an interview program on NPR called Bullseye. I listened to him interview Billy Idol recently, and they talked about that ending. Mm. And Jesse was immediately like, that's like the worst ending of all time. He's like, yeah, we didn't we didn't have an ending. So we just we had the cops come <laughs> in. It was just we, we couldn't think of anything else. Um, compared yeah, to Life of Brian, with them it, with them whistling yeah, it, on the on the crosses, like no, that is a good ending too. Like, don't get me wrong, uh, Life of Brian is like like just barely inched out by mm. Holy Grail in my mind, you know. Mm. And you know, it's the irony where like of all artists, where it's like the personal soul project that they they put the, her blood into mm-hmm. doesn't get as much love as like the doodle that they yeah did yeah. In <laughs> yeah. Um, my final thought is. Almost exactly mirroring yours, actually, Colin, is that I really enjoy this book. So I rented it from the library. Um, 
and I extended it because we ended up recording a little bit later than anticipated. And I normally am great with library books. Like I really enjoy having them. I think it's an amazing service. I want to own this book because I can't just sit down and read it. I just, I have to like pick it up and read a section and then stop for a little bit. It is great for that. Yeah. yeah. And like, because I like, felt the pressure to like try to get through as much of it as possible to record. And I am a very linear person. Like I, when I read, I like to read the, I'm really bad at reading graphic novels because I like to read in straight lines front to back. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so I found fa- I was struggling with that a little bit. So I think that the format both helps it and hurts it for me in a certain way that like, it makes it much easier to kind of land those surprise jokes that make them funnier. But I think as a whole, it makes it a little bit less accessible for me in particular to read it. And that makes sense. Uh, like, yeah, no, I agree with you. Like this book is good to read in like, short bursts it's like, like a perfect bathroom book like it should live on the back of everyone's toilet uh, uh, in the honest, best way possible like, no 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 in the best Laura, way possible that, no that's that's the fun <laughs> no no that's the funny thing like i very much read this book on the cracker while taking a shit <laughs> it's the perfect place for it <laughs> well there goes any chance that we might get a buzz market or endorsement from no, john hodgman I'm himself go buy a copy john for myself hodgman. so that i can have it on the back of my toilet. okay like, let me just it's say amazing i mean it with the utmost uh respect that when i say your book is great to read while shit <laughs> <laughs> we're moving on now we're moving on for sure <laughs> All right, so welcome to the rating section. Uh, First thing I'm going to have each of you do is rate this topic on a scale of one to five hobo nickels, which are the currency created and run by hobos where you can take either pocket lint or actual nickels and then create your own inscriptions upon them and those become the currency of the trade. So on a scale of one to five hobo nickels, how would you each rate this topic based on some of the arguments you've made so far? Um, well, I think that the format made it hard for me to read in some some instances. Uh, I gotta give this a four out of five hobo nickels. It's maybe one of those made out of pocket lint and the other one is actually made out of metal. I'm not sure yet. Um, but it is, it's really funny. Um, and it really caught me off guard in a lot of ways. And I looked forward to it every time I picked it up. Um, and I think that really my struggle with the format is more, God, this is going to sound stupid, but it's more like we live in a world where everything is moving forward and you have to be fast paced and you're always going. And this book just like kind of wanders around. Like some of the pages are different orientations and there's like charts in the middle of everywhere. And like, it's not a book that you can like power read. And not that I need to power read everything. That's kind of more how I'm used to reading, I guess. And so I think that my one detracted hobo nickel is more to do with the way I live my life right now than the actual quality <laughs> of the book. <laughs> That's fair. Chatter, how about yourself? Uh, I would give it three and a half hobo nickels. It is definitely like a funny book. It's it's definitely above average. But like, uh, I didn't find it like haha funny so much it is as it was uh, exhale sharply through my nose, nostrils. Not taking funny, a shit. You know? <laughs> Yeah, where's the exhalation coming from? Which orifice? (laughs) My nose. My nose. (laughs) And like, uh, and uh, yeah, no, I just, it's it's an amusing book and I I really enjoy it. I just, uh, I just uh, don't think it quite reaches like the pinnacle of comedy, but it's a damn good read. So three and a half. So like, imagine like I pull out three nickels, take a fourth nickel out. I try to prove the authenticity of that nickel by like bending it 
on my teeth. I accidentally snap it in two and swallow one half, so two and a half nickels. <laughs> now I will award uh, one of you the Golden Hohawk, the uh, R, 51st state of the United States, ruled by the Thunderbirds. Um, <laughs> Good luck uh, finding a picture for that one, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to, uh, I wrote down some specific criteria for how I was going to award this. And by those criteria, I think I have my answer, but I actually sort of want to go by how I think you guys have been a sounding board for me to digest this book and understand it because it's been under my belt for a long time. I enjoy it greatly. I myself will get it four, four and a half hobo nickels if I could, but I'm the host, so I can't. So thank you to you guys. And I'm going to say a slightly bit more of a thank you, surprisingly even to me, based on how some of this conversation started. Laura, you are the winner of the Golden Hohawk. Really? Um, we're, we're Chowder, <laughs> I think you had some more, like by my original criteria of analysis, I think you had some more poignant things to say and I would appreciate an actual book report from this on you from you on this <laughs> did from... you know that you're signing up for homework <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do not need to but if you could that'd be okay Laura I think the reason I, I would like to pick you as the recipient of this award is that you were able to um, you were able to articulate things in perhaps a less analytical and more human way and I was looking for things mm -hmm. in this book analytically as I tried to dissect it and pick apart the construction of these jokes. And I kept missing why I couldn't wrap my head around why it vexed me so. It's because you're a robot. And I think you, you I grounded you. it in a way. <laughs> it's because you grounded, <laughs> your grounded interpretation helped me view it from an angle I hadn't before. Hence the satisfaction I felt at the end of the discussion, which may seem ham-fisted and scripted, but that's just apparently the stuff that I get emotional about. So Honestly, hooray. that's fair. I, I actually agree with you on that, Gone. So. Oh man, I thought Chowder oh. had it because the Batman thing. The Batman thing was great. Like I'm taking that with me. Batman is gonna live in my pocket now. <laughs> I think that about wraps it up. Thank you. I just nodded so much for listening to gross. Thank you for listening to the Common Geeking Program. Uh, if you ever want to submit user questions, you can do that on Facebook or Twitter at Geeking Program. I myself can be found at Sonic Colin K on multiple platforms, and I have been joined by... Uh, I have been Laura, um, and you can find me on the Common Geeking Program Facebook if you are interested in saying hi. Uh, I tried to reanimate my Twitter and fucking failed somehow, so haven't well, moved past that me yet. Let me know. I'll start roping you into shit. Yeah. I had an account, and I tried to figure out what my password was, and, and I just fell into the customer trap where I just don't know anything that's true anymore, so. <laughs> and how about you? Uh, yeah, I'm Timel Chaudhary, or Chowder. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Timel Chaudhary. Uh, you can see how that's spelled in the description or something. Uh, Assuming I don't spell it wrong myself. <laughs> now nah, I've been on a good streak for a while. So if you do want to follow us, those are great ways to do that. We're always looking for additional engagement. We have some changes coming up to the show soon, as well as some fun new projects that we're cooking up that we hope to share with you. So next week, we'll have an episode by Chowder. What you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about Little Witch Academia and uh, feel-good media, just like uh, stuff, that, uh, stuff that you watch or read or whatever, 
that like makes you uh, uh, feel good, makes you feel inspired, fills you with like warm, fuzzy feelings, that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, I figured it'd be appropriate since the episode airs on my birthday, so. Hey, happy oh, hey. birthday, Chatter. That'll yeah. be nice. So yeah, you can catch that on December 21st. Sounds great. Nice. But for now, this concludes our podcast. You may now look out the window and see that it is evening. And so to you, I can only say thank you, welcome, and good evening. That is all. This episode of the Common Geeking Program was hosted by Colin Ketchen, joined by Laura Kramer and Taimul Chowdhury. This episode is sponsored by my deep, sincere, burning desire for John Hodgman to hear this podcast and enjoy it. The podcast is created and produced by Colin Ketchen and Jeff Levitt with this episode edited by me, Colin Ketchen, featuring original music, also by me. Next week, we will be talking about Little Witch Academia, hosted by Chowder. Remember that any engagement enters you for a chance to pick your own episode topic. We'll read any of your Apple podcast reviews on the air. That's all for now. We'll see you next week, and thank you for listening to this. Do you guys want to do a confession quarter? I have a fun little short one. I don't know if either of you have things that you would want to confess. I actually, for once, don't really have anything that I can think of. That might be more because I can't actually think <laughs> than, than not having done anything awkward recently, but it's what it is. Well, then instead of a confession corner, let me just make our post credits right now. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, after work, I've been getting real hankerings to play Smash Bros because, you know, it's Smash Bros, True. but I don't have a Switch. Because I like, I'm not gonna spend money for two, three games I want to play. Uh, Those I games are worth it. Games on the Switch. Now, yeah, so. yeah, but that's a lot of money and time that I've already <laughs> invested in an Xbox, and I can't even keep up with that. I feel like I shouldn't pile on. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And I got out of work at five yesterday, and I didn't start D and D till seven. And D and D, I ran in the mall, so um, I sat on my phone. I got a credit card. And I bought a Nintendo Switch from Best Buy and I picked it up. <laughs> and so I have that now. It's actually sitting in the trunk of my car and it's sitting in the trunk because at the game night I played a bunch of Smash and I was like, oh, I got that out of my system faster than I expected. So I think I'm going to return it tomorrow. Hmm. You, sh- It's, yeah, yeah it's so good bad. though. I love my <laughs> Switch. To be fair, I did get it there. It's Charles got it as a Christmas gift. But you know, we're getting married. So what's his is mine. What's mine is his. And we got a Switch for Christmas last year and it's great. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you have your name emblazoned on one of the Joy-Con? Um, no, but we did go upstate this weekend to for Kelly's mm. birthday, for Charles' birthday. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and we brought all of the extra Switch things so we could play Super Smash. And at some point after having a few drinks, we were like, well, we need to figure out whose Joy-Cons are whose. And so Kelly wrote on their <laughs> Joy-Cons ours <laughs> and then wrote nothing on the other ones. So. I feel like that's not the clearest way to do that, but if it worked, it worked. It definitely worked. It was not clear then, and it remains (laughs) unclear now, but it did the trick.